You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is On Principle, and I am here with Professor Chaim Seyman from Villanova University, someone that I got to know through our mutual connection to the Besden of America. And Chaim, I always uh, am very grateful that you can find time. Before we get started to the media conversation, I just couldn't help but think that when the courses reconvene in Villanova again, and you're back in front of the classroom, there's probably going to be a lot of energy based on how much the Supreme Court decisions, the indictments against former President Trump, how much those are part of every day's news stories and exactly what's constitutional, what's not, what's obstruction of justice, what isn't, what is, uh, what is defined by equal opportunities and, and not do you, do you do you do you anticipate that yourself coming back when everyone is coming back to classes? Yes, you know it's always interesting how much the law is is part of our our national dialogue. And I always tell this to students. I said, you know, you're going to study here in a more technical way, but to some degree, it's always part of the conversation. I remember a couple of years ago, I told them to those of you who watch ESPN. I said, I want you, you know, in the course of 24 hours of programming, come back to me and note how many segments are have a legal angle to them. And the number was quite high. Um, and I said, and then I said, this is not a legal network. This is a sports network that I think largely uh, is centered on the field. But just look at how much stuff, you know, even in a place where we're away from politics, away, you know, in a, in a place that's supposed to be a refuge. I bring that up saying, if in sports, Kava Homer in politics. One thing I'd say, you know, with constitutional law, I always say this like spade in him in the word constitution. One is like the, the document and then the sort of lawyer arguments that emerge from them. So the particular cases, the issues as they're teed up in front of the courts, which are usually very circumscribed and depend on certain statutes, certain precedents, certain uh, doctrines of constitutional law. And that's, of course, you know, what, what one studies in law school and what the expertise in that area is. But, but re- remember that constitution also means how we are constituted. What are the frameworks, not just legal, but social, political, moral, that bring us together. And I think if the way I would say it is that there are, there's always constitutional law being created. In other words, the Supreme Court every year decides to opinions, And in June, of course, is when the big ones come out. There are always been sort of a hubbub uh, amongst the law professors and the you know people who care about this. But then there are these moments, and you know, it's happening in America and called the home in Israel, where where the constitution at that more social structural level is what's on the table. What are the rules that binds us? What are the commitments that hold the society together? How are we constituted? And I think some of these questions about you know the the limits of executive authority and executive power and sort of what the the meta rules of the game are here in this country and Kava Homer, Benbenosha Kava Homer, uh, what's going on in Israel, which is how is this society constituted? Those are on the table more so now. And I think that's sort of what's, what's sort of behind your question is that, you know, there now we're talking about not constitutional law in the way thought of only in the law school classroom, but that which constitutes us. You know, connecting it to Eretz Yisrael, which doesn't have a formal constitution, you know, the, the precedents that they use are quite interesting. And whether it was laws that had been passed in the previous history of various, I wouldn't call it administrations, but various Israeli governments, or based on 
what they call uh, precedents of other liberal democracies. It's 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 quite interesting about what they can use and what we could use to say what are we constituted as. Yeah, I, I just want to say I, I like to say you know. Israel doesn't have a constitution in one sense, but every, not just Israel, every society, every group, you know, your shul has a constitution, which is there's a certain set of norms and assumptions about how things work. And then sometimes there's fuzziness and then sometimes there's contest, right? So I would say there's always a constitution in the sense of a set of norms, expectations and procedures that, that are working and following, and then sometimes those are more formalized, and that's what we mean when we say Israel doesn't have a constitution. That's certainly true in that way. Uh, but what they're working out right now is what is the constitution about a will of a of a Knesset majority, right, a bare majority, versus what things are are beyond the power of of a, of a government to do, right, which is one of the core questions of constitutional law, that can happen through a document, or as in England, that can happen through an accumulated sense of norms and practices. Uh, obviously, there are differences between the two, and one of the things you see is going on in Israel now is that we are, they're negotiating exactly that question without a net that clearly tells you where the limits are, and I think that's why there's so much friction and interest and agitation in the streets. You know, to me, this would be a great time to call for a constitutional convention in Israel and try to work up some bargain, but I don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah. I would say it isn't, you know, it's not just the vacuum, but I think there's also an accumulated animosity that has been simmering for many, many years, an idea that the government and the country is being hijacked by people who are religious, people who do not have the actual sweat capital in the country. I think that uh, we all know about the miracle in the desert of how this country was put to pulled together incredibly. And I think the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those original pioneers who feel that they were at the vanguard of the uh, of how that country got off the ground, they do not want to see it becoming something different. I think that's a lot of what's fueling the tension. And therefore, I don't know, even if there would be a constitutional convention that people would agree on, the rancor and anger, I think, is something that uh, I'm not sure how it's going to be mastered. I'm not sure how it's going to be marshaled. We usually say that, uh, you know, you squabble like, you know, with, in, in, in learning, and we can get to this in a couple of minutes as Vahave Basufa. You have Mohamta Shotaira and you, and you lead to Ava. I, I don't think that's the ground rules here. Uh, there's a, a, such a, almost a chasm that I don't know can be actually bridged. I'm not trying to be a super pessimist, but it seems very, very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. And yet these things can and do happen. I, I would just say one of my, fa- just to recommend your audience, uh, one of my favorite thinkers on, on this issue and many, uh, who had a great podcast, I thought, is uh, Misha Goodman, who's a you know, philosopher, public intellectual uh, in Israel. He was on the Times of Israel where he, he talked about sort of the pshat the drush and the sod, in other words, of this conflict. And, and I thought did a really good job of sort of breaking out the layers. There's a kind of legal layer, a cultural layer, and then a kind of deeper layer, uh, which I'd, I'd recommend to your to your listeners. 
for, I think, American audiences and people who get their news from whatever CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of the outlets here, I think they miss a lot of the history and what you know, the actual, the feelings that really simmer between Haredi and non-Haredim, I don't know if they get that. And I think for that reason, when people hear about, you know, the Ayatollah regime and they hear about what's happened here, it's Israel, it's a dictatorship. Oh, it's, you know, he's the, Netanyahu is just Trump in a, in a, in a you know, in a Sabra uniform. I think they really miss a lot about the coalition. They miss a lot about what the history has been. And, you know, in many ways, just as, you know, as Shylock said in The Merchant of Venice, can we not take vengeance? I think there's part of that is going on, too. I hate to say it because uh, the people who are seem to be wanting to extracting their pound of flesh should be the people who should be involved in uh, in being Mavatir. But I think that's part of the natural human condition that when you've been kicked around, you do sometimes take advantage. I think that's part of what's happening there as well. You know, w- one area where where the two of us have a commonality and I referred to it before was in terms of Batedinim, obviously uh, it, whether it's grand Batedinim that used to be in Eretz Yisrael, that's no longer the case, but there are so many private Batedinim and, and also the way the various Batedinim that are found throughout this country, not just in the Northeast. I, I have to say a, a town that I spent 20 years in Chicago now has a has two very strong Bate Dinim. So when we're dealing with Dine Teira and Dinim that are based on, let's call it a constitution, the bulk corpus of Torah Shabalpeh and accepted Piske Halocha, here are grounds that Although there are sociological aspects to it, I think we were in a, we're in much safer ground. And you told me about a year ago that you had an, a grand idea about exploring Batedinim. I think we're in a really interesting and exciting space at the moment in terms of Batedin, and maybe you know another way to say is is the application of Choshen Mishpat. And let me let me tell you why. So, if we think about America, really before the last. 20 or 30 years, there's relatively little in the organized, based in Hoshin Mishpat space. The Batidinim that exist tend to do family law, very important, but just, you know, to segment off. And really, right, since emancipation in first Western and then Eastern Europe, I would say you could think about there's like a two or 250 year low in the development of Hoshin Mishpat as it is applied to then and now contemporary economies. And of course, that is the exact period where the world undergoes massive, massive changes. So I always say with Hilcha Shabbos, you know, of course, new things come up, but those new things come up incrementally. And we see how we paskin about something like electricity and then something like a microwave and something like a Shabbos cock. And each time something new comes up and eventually a consensus emerges. And I would say that consensus is public. In other words, we see Bukhazi, what the Oilam is doing. So we know this is how we deal with with uh, with uh, timers and this is how we deal with this thing and this is how we deal with that thing. 
When it comes to Chosh and Mishpat, I think two things have happened. One, as I said, the gaps have been longer. I think that, of course, there has been stuff, but I think in a sort of mass scale in a way that people are really applying these things and leave it to the two cases that come up. It's been, there's like a 200-year gap precisely in the, the years where society and technology and business changes. And then the second thing that happens is that it's less public, right? Especially today, but they din are, are private, right? They don't typically publish their psaks. They're, they're put between the parties. Now, of course, certain Dayanam publish things and give shiurim, but even that, there wasn't so much of that that long ago. So we have, we, this, this happens behind a little bit of a veil of secrecy. I, I said to a colleague, non-Jewish colleague, I said, you know, most things about orthodoxy are in the Orthodox world are transparent to the Orthodox world and, and kind of a little bit incomprehensible to the outsider unknown. I said, when it comes to the Besdin system, I think it's also basically opaque to people within the community, unless you are uh, someone very, very involved in it, which are, of course, people who are. So that's kind of one thing. I think we're at a moment of a lot of change. Another reason is, Let's think about what it takes to get a case into Besden in the modern period, right? So you need at least two parties who are from, who engage in some business transaction, which is significant enough to spend money and time lawyering and litigating. So if we go back, let's say, two generations, right, the firm world, particularly the part of the firm world that would be interested in the Besden and sort of willing to take something out of the civil system and into the into the medicine system is small. It's not particularly wealthy. So therefore, just, of course, things happen, but the number of potential contact points is little, so that your your modal case is a maised shul or yeshiva or a school with one of its employees, that kind of comes up. Then you've got, you know, kind of communal disputes. And then you've got things that are very, very tightly revolved around from life, you know, maybe chasanas, Pesach programs, things like that. But everything was fairly small. Now, all those things have grown. But I'd go further. If today you live in, let's say, Muncie or Lakewood or the five towns, right, there's a good chance you bought your house from a from Jew. There's a good chance you're leasing your car from a from Jew. Your gardener, landscaper, contractor is you know, likely a firm Jewer or run by a company run by a firm, firm person. You're certainly anyone you're doing, you know, in the Simcha industry. There's a good chance many or all those people are from. So if we just look at like the daily life, the daily business life of, of a firm Jew today, there are so many more people and so many more contact points that can create the potentiality of creating a best in case. Beyond that, and then I'll, I'll finish, that's at, I would say, the daily level. The other new part of the system is that we now have significant multi and sometimes multi-multi-million dollar transactions that are conducted by and between from Jews and from Jews exclusively. And that means that we now have a new layer of case beyond the sort of daily, so to speak, the, the things that arise in daily life, which have increased, but also at the at the larger end, right? You can now have major real estate transactions, major financing transactions that are occurring by and between from Jews. And these are now potential Besden cases. So that's why I chose, that's why I think it's worth studying this at this moment, is because we're in the middle of a lot of different changes, a lot of different moving pieces, and I think we're 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 going to watch in the next gener in the next 
10, 20 years, a solidification of how we're going to apply halacha to these questions. Well, you know, you, you mentioned sort of in passing Shabbos and Kashras, and, and you mentioned how the, the incremental changes that went hand in hand with the advancements in food processing and how things are done. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. And people who are passionate and care and really want to apply halacha realize the tools that are in their hands. I think the area that you are talking about, the the litigation uh, in Kleshen Mishpat on a large level, what it also needs is also that type of accessory knowledge. It needs knowledge of the legal systems that govern generally corporations. And and when, when you talk about Hoshin Mishpat opening up, I would say that the chuvas that were written at the end of the 19th century, and maybe even one could point to the doctoral essay of uh, Scholl Weinkart uh, that was assigned to him by Yechiel Jakob Weinberg in, in, in the Hildesheimer Seminary as what is the status of a corporation? What is the halachic status of shares when you have stocks? Th- these were groundbreaking attempts to try to formulate what is a corporate identity. And I think the, the poskim, the rabbonim, the Dayanim are sitting in these plethora of, of, of Bateidinim, they need to be familiar with the intricacies of how business works, mm-hmm. what, what all of this means. It's one thing, you know, as you can say, you know, I, I know how to open up a Pischei and I can find something which seems to be parallel. But here, they're going to need the type of expertise that the Kashras people need to discover whether something is bishal or not bishal. This is, I think, a, a challenge. So I think you're right. Here's what I'll say. I've interviewed a bunch of Dayanim, and I hope to do more. I have been almost uniformly impressed, certainly with the experience Dayanim. Most of the ones, I don't want to say all of them, did not go to law school and did not have a college education. But I have been almost to a person impressed by their understanding of how the world works, how the business world works, exactly like you said. I think the analogy to the to the cautious expert is, is a good one. I've been pretty impressed. So I think that that is, is, is growing. And, you know, look, again, I think there's a tension because certainly in the more yeshivish world, part of what makes you right to be a Dayan is not to have gone to college and not to have gone to law school and et cetera. But of course, you need some of that. Uh, maybe even a lot of it. And again, I could, you know, think of some people who who impressed me uh, tremendously. So I think there is some tension there. Then, you know, when you talked about uh, the Constitution, you know, and, and, we, and we transitioned to this question, and I think the questions like, you know, the nature of the corporation and things like that are the equivalent of the, the constitutional questions here. If you a small deal, you can say that you're doing it all on, I'll call it Talmudic infrastructure. But the second you're doing a large deal, no one does a real estate deal without creating an LLC for liability, for to limit liability, you know, to make the loan non-recourse, et cetera, right? So you're already walking in with a series of documents and a series of categories and a series of assumptions that are driven by American law and by, I would say, business custom, which they're related, but they're not the same. And then you come to a Besden and you say, it's nearly din Torah. We don't do Dintor in the narrow sense. 
Everyone tells me their star bearer in includes sometimes Hainladin, Hainlipshara, sometimes Pshara Krovaladin, but I don't think anybody uh, commits themselves to Din Torah. Uh, but certainly that the, the rubric here is halacha. And now, conceptually, you have to come to understand how these two systems should operate and then how they do operate. And I ask those as different questions because they're not exactly the same thing. I've heard, you know, interviewing people, very, you know, some of different approaches to, to these questions. But these are often the questions uh, at the center. I think we're not at the point yet where there's a Mishnah Sidura about how these things work that is sort of Mekubal end to end or even within a certain community but you do see that but they did in certain communities are beginning to chart out sort of the the, the sketch of what the dividing line and how these systems uh, relate to each other and i hope as i go on that this is something i can i can classify categorize and write about both from what i'm hearing and then from my own learning together well, i can tell you that due to and i i, I don't know exactly how the decree came down, but there was a decree from the Bagats, from the Bezdin Agodo in the Supreme Court in Eretz Yisrael, that in many ways truncated and limited Hoshin Mishpat cases by the Bezdin in Eretz Yisrael. In other words, by the official Batei Dinim. They could still be, they still had total control of issues of, of Gitin. And sometimes, as you know, Gitin issues schlep with it many times issues of uh, of of control of finances and control of uh, various properties but pure khayshin mishpat cases have been jettisoned out of what, what was at one time a very rich area whether it was Rav Yoshev or Bishal Zolti or Rav Zalman Nehemiah they have and you can find them in the Ice of Piskedinim you can find a very large amount of Piskei Dinim in Chayshin Mishpat. What's happened is that they have broken into smaller Batei Dinim uh, that aren't necessarily officially from the government, but many of those, as you alluded to before, many of those Moistas are, and the Dayana themselves, are printing their Piskei Dinim. So I, I think there does exist a place for precedent. The question is, how much can that be centered here. I can tell you, when I went there to throw last year, at least four or five koilim in the area where I was draying around Yerushalayim were learning Chayshin Mishpat. And and when I came back from my uh, stay in Eretz Yisrael, I joined the Chesidah that was also learning Hilchis Nisrei Shreinim in mm-hmm. order to serve as a Bezdin eventually. Mm-hmm. For that, so I think there is a, a, a. I think you have tapped into a wave that is rising, and I think there exists. And you, and again, this is always, as you know, and as anyone who's in the legal field knows, there's a sensitivity of how to apply a precedent, and and you can there. So I, I think there is a body of knowledge. There's a body of of psukim that is already there. But you're also right that one of the, if you in fact, if you go back to the fifties, one of the. Uh... One of the conditions of creating the system was that they had to have a system of appeals and that they had to have a system of published precedents. And as you said, you then get those those books that contain their psyche din. At least in America, my sense is that, and this is somewhat a sociological question that, you know, I don't know what I don't know, but that those are not studied, certainly not in yeshivas. And I wonder 
I wonder whether those are studied in Choshen uh, Mishpah Kolos or not, um, such that my sense is, and from talking to people, that those are not relied on as precedents in, in the way that a legal system would. Of course, if Rabbi Yashiv said something. That's the point I wanted to tell you, that what what happened was, especially after Rebel Yosha was reaching a certain age, around his 80s, they started gathering his psokim and trying to define them. He wasn't behind them. One of the great complaints about Rebel Yosha, everyone knew he was the Amud Hayra, everybody knew that he was the great Paisik, but unlike Ramesha Feinstein and others who published their chuvas, he didn't do it. So there were people, not himself, the Kaivis right. Chuvas, and all these collections from Rebel Yoshev Sakum were done by others. Rebel Yoshev right. wasn't even so happy about it, but he allowed it because he figured it would be Parnosa for, for those people who were publishing those, those Chuvas. So, but where did they get them from? What they did was they did a selective reading of the Ois of Piskei Dinim. And <laughs> let's say, you know, they weren't necessarily interested in what, let's say, Dayan X and Dayan Y said, but they did bring Rebel Yoshev's Taira to the forefront. You you raise a point. Why aren't people looking at uh, the, the corpus of Chayshin Mishpat Psokim that exist? Part of it is, was a skepticism about the quality of the, the Dayonim. But they knew about Rebel Yosha. They knew Rebel Jolti. And there's also skepticism of the Medina and everything else. Right. And, and Rebel Zalman So I think that, I, I think, I think it is there. And my, my gut feeling is, you know what the Gemara says? Gufa basa erasha grira. There is a sense, even though we have a, such a thriving, Lakewood and Muncie, there is definitely a sense that Eretz Yisrael is the head that's wagging the tail. And I think that what they deem him here, although they do need to align and have an understanding of the American system, I think they will be using those uh, Piske Dinim, they will be using that corpus. That that could be. And I think we're also developing here, you know, you know, in, in talking to people, you see that one, that there are differences between Eretzro and America, even in the way the communities are structured, I think particularly the more Haredi communities are in Israel more, almost, you know, more walled off. Uh, and therefore, when you think of things like Minhagim and Minhagim and communities and Minhagim and things, Minagasochrim uh, and various ways that that plays out, you will hear when I've talked to people some differences. I said, well, maybe they do that in Eretzro, but here in America, we wouldn't say that. No, hundred percent. The weight that the the people like Rabbi Yoshev and Rabbi Jolti and others gave to certain communities, even to the point of being able to cancel contracts based on how it defied community expectations, you would not see that here in the United States. I, I think there's another factor here, and this is this is like the big secret that that's an open secret that Dina de Machusa Dina means something different in America than it does in Eretz Yisrael. I, I can quote not only Rebel Yoshev, who has a sort of in, a parva interpretation, but Rav Sternbach, who's the head of the Badats, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, for his statements, Dina Machusad Eretz Yisrael is barely tolerated, whereas here, Dina Machusad is very much understood that you cannot cheat on your taxes. You cannot just decide not to pay. There is a healthy... I believe admiration for at least the ideal of the Dinah Malchusa here, and no real Dayan 
or Posik or Rov is going to tell you, yeah, try to rip off the government all you want. They're all it's, it's just it's just the Stalinists and it's just the, the, the czar again. And I think in Eretz Yisrael, though, there are very important poskim who are saying, hmm, if you, when you have a, a malchus that promulgates A, B, C, that goes against this and that, that it's run by Jews uh, who have violated A, B, C. So you have a sense that we don't necessarily have to follow. We we might have to pay when we're caught, but it, it never creates a matzav of a real isur not to follow. But I think, at least in my experience, uh, these questions are less about, you know, Questions about cheating the government don't really show up in Besdin so much, as in, you know, things like the validity of contracts, the applicability of zoning law, of environmental law, of uh, various regulations, you know, things like that, and, and where that fits in. And then also on the structural things, you know, as I said, corporations, LLCs, uh, various forms like this. So I, I think that in the I, I, I just want to tell you, Chaim, again, our peasant experience is somewhat uh, different. I think 50% of the cases that I've been involved in, and many of them were pure Chayshimishbe cases, were cases where there was not only uh, you know skimping on legalities, but actual violations, whether they had to do with Medicaid fraud. No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Of course, from halakhically, we view Besdin as a very ancient institution and, and one that's sort of integral and constitutive of of Jewish community and Jewish self-governance. From the perspective of American law, it doesn't look at a Besden like that at all. It basically looks at it like an arbitration panel. And it doesn't sort of matter, meaning you could take it to anybody, a retired judge or or you know the the modern equivalent of the Shlosher or a Bucker. And um and you know three rabbis or whatnot is is no worse. And now in arbitration law itself, there's all these in American arbitration law, there's all these questions of well, what if illegalities are are understood as part of, you know, come up? Is, is there an obligation to, to report it? Are you allowed to ignore, you know, binding law about whether about contracts or about taxes or about regulations? One of the things that I don't think anyone has talked about and what I want to bring into this is like, what are the implications of that on the Indian Malchusadina? In other words, if the Malchus itself has, as American law is, a fairly liberal arbitration system, by which I mean it doesn't do a lot of checking as to what happens in a secular, what I call a secular arbitration. So how does that change things? So I think there's like a lot of intersecting questions that I want to deal with. So in New York, there's a a law that someone who's not a licensed real estate agent uh, cannot earn a commission on a real estate deal. And, you know, they, they, they care a lot about this, at least the way the law is written. Uh, and they could they could reverse it, and they can even disaffirm the transaction and whatnot. Uh, now you know in the firm world, it's it's not uncommon for someone to broker a deal who isn't a licensed agent. So this case then come to a Besdin, and uh, clearly you can see here that one Besdin has you know one view of Dina Malchus is not even going to think that that is a relevant factor and say, listen, what did the parties agree to that that and 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 you know that's what it is. Uh, and a Besdin that sort of sees itself as more enmeshed in a sort of American law and the, the culture of that will take that into consideration more. Again, I know of a case in Israel and America on, on exactly this question and uh, when Israel has been written up. So, you know, that's relatively mild, right? As you move towards things that are more serious, 
I think that that these things um, are dealt with more seriously. But again, if if in the context of a secular arbitration, one let's be honest, the re, one reason why business partners go to arbitration, Jewish or not, is confidentiality. Right. So and and that confidentiality is clear that it covers all you know parties who've known each other for a long time and done lots of deals together tend to have lots of dirt on each other and have a mutually assured destruction sort of pact and they often go to arbitration secular arbitration uh, exactly for that so in that sense uh, you know of course in in the Benson this has a halachic framing and whatnot but but there's a way in which this is um, this is happening this is one thing that happens in arbitration. Even though when we get the the parties to sign, as you know, one of the issues that comes up consistently in almost every they din is how to get the party that is found liable to actually pay, even according to what they have made up to. And this is one of the reasons I have found when people who aren't so yeshivish and even people who, who have a yeshiva training and a background say they don't want to go to Besden, because they believe that even if the, they are found victorious in Besden and the case is ruled in their favor, they don't see Besden having the teeth to be able to uh, actually uh, enforce it. And they feel they're going to be chasing this person who they're after for, for years. Yeah, so I think this is one of these places, right? And again, this is very much sort of the core of what I'm interested in researching of, of these intersections uh, of American and Allah, because if you've signed an arbitration agreement and, you know, there's some procedures you need to follow, but honestly, not many. The Besden's award is, is the process is called confirmation, meaning you take it to the court and they confirm it. And then they can use the, the, the court should and is legally obligated to use all steps to enforce that judgment as it would as if the court issued its own judgment. In other words, so one of the powers of arbitration law, American arbitration law, and which again applies to, to everybody, uh, in that sense, medicine isn't special, but the way we use it is, is to say that we have private justice, but public enforcement, which is very, very powerful. In fact, under the law, uh, if a arbitration panel orders, uh, you know, can issue a subpoena, and then the party can go to court and have that enforced. Documents, witnesses. So again, it's cumbersome. I don't want to say it's seamless. It's it's you know, there's some complexities there, but but that is the way the infrastructure is set up. So what it does is, if there's an arbitration agreement signed, it almost restores. I like to say this. It sort of restores us to the kahal system. In other words, um, it almost restores us to to having this power in the seats, even though, as you mentioned, the in NF functional, tactless level, the authority is coming from the state by a contract law. But once that's signed, the state itself is going to enforce the Besden and can have the effect of, you know, certainly not the Besden Haggadol, but of something that is, you know, more known to us from Jewish history, where communities were structured in a way that flouting the Besden uh, was difficult. Now, of course, Without an arbitration agreement, the government's not going to do anything. And then you have to rely on what I call, you know, communal enforcements, which, depending on the community in the case, can be very strong or very weak. One of the things that's fascinating about communal enforcement is that, in some sense, 
it can be much, much stronger than anything the civil system can do, right? If they say, listen, you can't come to show, your kids can't go to school, you can't get an alia, no one's going to talk to you, no one's getting in your house. You know, the state, they can throw you in jail, but in some sense, all that is much worse. On the other hand, garnering the communal will to enforce its sanctions is difficult. My sense is outside of Seruv Get um, cases, it's not easy to, you know, get the communal sanctions to work. Uh, certainly in more open communities, I'm sure, you know, in, 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 in more closed, more chassidish communities, maybe more. But even there, you know, the firm world is big. There's lots of places to go. You get a rub to your side and he gets a rub to his side and then it becomes, you know, complex. But, you know, I, the way I tell students about it, and I teach this to non-Jewish students, we don't get into like the, you know, omekasugia on Chosh Mishma, but about like how this sits. I said, you have to think that there's two bases of authority. There's the inherent authority that's backed up by com- the communal uh, support and ultimately sanctions, and then there's the legal authority. And to understand the way the system works, you have to understand how those two relate and structure to each other. You know, you know, I think both of us are invested in more people doing the right thing, of not going to our of even on these multi-million dollar deals that you referred to. And there's still, I think, as I mentioned before, anecdotally, and I think it could probably be borne out by your research or others, there's still a tremendous resistance. Despite the arbitration agreement, there's a resistance of going to Besden. We always talk about education being key. What do you think is the best way to light a fire and let people understand that Besden should be the first stop? So I I think that there you know, in certain communities, uh, the way I, I'm phrasing it today, at least, uh, is that Bezin is not always where everything goes, but but discussions of Bezin are usually the first ones brought up. Certainly in, in more in more Yishimish communities, I think, let's put it this way, you person at least has to have a publicly stateable reason as to why they're not going to. Now, that doesn't mean, right, you can search in Brooklyn, in Kings County, in Rockland County, you can search the court uh, dockets. You'll see plenty of, you know, from people there. So I don't want to say that, that this doesn't happen. But I do think that there has been an increasing awareness that this is part of our you know, religious vocabulary. Now, I think the answer is, and again, now we're going to talk of the bigger deals where there's going to be lawyers involved, right, is to get the lawyers comfortable that this is, you know, a good place to go. And that's on the the Batidin and the Dayanim. So I think the more things that are published, right, the more open it is, right? What do people complain? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the procedures. It's a kangaroo court. So the less of that that there is, and the more that it takes, I would say, the good things from the civil system, procedural order, structure, predictability, and then filters those through the halacha, I think I think the better product you're going to get. People don't like to be surprised, and I think that you know when I ask, I ask as I've interviewed people, I ask, well, tell me some horror stories. Don't tell me names. I don't care about names. That's not what I'm interested in. And I would say routinely the horror stories are not substantive but procedural. Meaning, no one says, "I can't believe they relied on this Rashba." In all the people I've I've um, I've interviewed, uh, lawyers, parties, Diana, I've never heard. Even though I've asked, because I thought, I, and I'll be honest, I thought I'd hear more of this. I've never heard a complaint that, like, you know, they relied on some weird sheet, though, or they didn't understand. It was more about process, right? It was much more about things that are 
honestly easy to fix and and that there's very little halachic hesitancy not to. You know, there's just no like chocolate says you can't do this. So that's, I would say, one of the things that's interesting to me. So people don't like the yelling and the screaming. Uh, they They have a sense of like, you know, Am I going to get a fair shake? Because especially between different communities, right? You take a more modern person, bring them to, uh, you know, are they going to, you know, look at me with my, you know, strugi or a woman whose hair isn't covered? Are they going to take me seriously? So I think the more that can be done to to get out of that, the more that can be done to give. You're never going to be able to predict, tell you here's what's in your case, but things like dina de malchusa, things like minagasochum, things like corporations, things like contracts. What are our shitas? What are our policies? What do we do? I think the more of that out there, the more you're going to convince the lawyers um, who are advising on these cases, and again, we're talking about the bigger cases, that this is a good place to go. And then I think uh, I think uh, the more people will you get in. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just add to what you're saying. I, you, you touched on it a little bit. And, and of course, we work for the Besan of America, and we know our good friend Nitamar um, has been publishing and I mean editing the journal. And I, I you know, I'm not a, a big chassid of Ami magazine, but one thing Ami publishes every in almost every magazine is Besdin cases, and mm-hmm. I think I think they are you know fictionalized, but actual Besdin cases with tainas and the the reasons. I, I don't know if they have a um, a website where you can access them, but if that to me that is a very wonderful way to give these things over. My friend, my good friend Rabbi Shaffel, who uh, is works on the hotline on the Business Law Institute, I think those little articles uh, and, and that circulate in sort of a popular way, I think are yeah. making a difference. I think people who and could instead of reading some sort of scuttlebutt about you know what what's happening you know in, in some community, but could read about these cases, and I think here not only the the inventiveness of the process, but as you know, as you are a writer and have written uh, wonderfully in so many ways, lucidity and good writing make a difference when people yeah. take an interesting subject. They do it in a way that doesn't give it short shrift, but allows people not to believe they don't, they're not reading War and Peace. They're not reading a 900 page decision. I think the more of those popularizations that occur, the more it'll get into people's minds that, hey, Besden might just be an option. The more it seems that you're, you're bringing a modern question to a horse and buggy system. The, the more of a problem is. Now, I think with these big cases, and again, I've seen this from, from experience and from interviews, they are introducing a type of complexity that but they didn't have historically not have to deal with. In American law schools, in the first year, every, every law student spends at least a semester, it used to be a year, on civil procedure. It's a major, major topic. And then you could take advanced courses in federal jurisdiction and conflicts of laws. There's no word in halacha for civil procedure. And that's where the biggest gaps are, because, you know, halacha has a way of thinking about contracts and secular has a way of thinking about halacha. Right. But when it comes to procedure, that's an underdeveloped field in halacha. It's a little bit in Hilchus Dayanim and, you know, a little bit in Tanim and Itan and places like that. But we haven't really talked about the Toanim, who some people love them, some people hate them. We'll say that. Let's just say that by the best that we are both associated with, the Toanim are not allowed. Although lawyers are even encouraged correct. to be there, correct. So, so Tonim are not allowed to visit America. Lawyers are. 
Uh, other Batei Dinim sort of are the opposite. Uh, most will allow either. So Tonim, you know, they don't have the best reputation within the community. This is no secrets. You know, but, but one thing I think impedes the system is that, as I understand it, and again, my research is still in its uh, maybe in a very initial stages, but uh, but more towards the beginning of the end. Look, for a lawyer, right, most of what you're paying a lawyer for is not court time, right, I'm talking litigation. It's back office time. And, you know, the, there's always complaints about billing, but the sense is that, okay, a lawyer bills his time or her time, and uh, one pays the bill. And therefore, once... And the whole structure of the American system is that a lot of stuff is done before the litigation actually happens. So by the time we come to litigation, we know what the issues are. We know what's in contest. We know what's not in contest. That requires a lot of back-end work by the lawyers and by the Dianan. So, so in the Bezden system, there's basically the only time that gets paid for is face time, is time in the hearings, in the Dintara itself. And then what it does is it takes lots of things that could be done, I think, more efficiently and quicker, not in session, and pushes them in session because that's how both the Dayanim sitting there and the Tawanim are going to get paid only for faith. You you hit something now that resonates deeply within me. And again, if you look at the classic sources of what a Din Taira is, most of the Din Taira is the discussion afterwards, not the the Kabbalist Aedis and hearing the case in front. You're, what you're suggesting is there should be much more work done beforehand so that it's done, it's, it, it's dealt with much more efficiently. So really, you're correct. We turn the, the hearing into the major part when we have a complex case that takes hours and hours of post Besden research. You know, what, what is going to move any of us as Dayanim to really sacrifice good sections of our day and night towards this case. When we realize that whatever the, 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 we're not being paid for it. We all have other jobs. We all have other responsibilities. And I think ultimately there's a little bit of a short changing that occurs. So that's, that's one thing, but I think you're right about what you said. Also the, if we we came in, even the Dinatar, we sat in together. We knew nothing about it beforehand. We sat there like we were on a game show and we had to, you know, let's make a deal, right? We walk in over there and it's going to be box number one, two or three. And we are then overwhelmed by information that we now have to sort of use that hour or two or three to process in a way that's maybe beyond the scope of the complexity of these cases. So I, I think you're onto something there. I think that is something which I would push for. Right. I have an article in my head. There's some halachic, maybe some halachic uh, issues, but, it, but I think there's also a cultural shift. In other words, in my sense is that the Besnans work in the way they do, and even the Besnans America, which is structured a little bit differently, uh, because of this, I'll call it a minhag, although I don't mean that in the halachic sense, that the t- only time paid for is face time, hey mitzah the dayanim, hey mitzah the tonim, and what that does is it is it pushes a lot of things to happen in one form that I think are better done uh, in another form. And I think, I go back to my point, I think the more people know whether it's in our forum here today or from any of the other outlets or podcasts, that Bate Dinim are an option, that it's out there. I think that will make the product better. Here's, I guess, how we could say this. Uh, everything about Besden at the moment is in the realm of Tarsh Peh. 
and I think that bringing some things to Tarsh B'chsav, hey, Mitzad the Psakim, hey, Mitzad the procedures, hey, Mitzad just how the system works, uh, will be to its benefit. Even before, if you go with the Seder Apsukim, even before Matan Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is standing all day long dealing with interpersonal issues. There is no Torah yet, and yet right. my tent, your tent, your spot, these yes. are things that are, are going to be with us. And if we and, had, to add to that, and Yisrael calls for procedural reform. But but it's even before the Torah. This even is part of what it means to even this is a generation that went out of Mitzrayim that were on a high together. They were singing at his Ozyoshir. But you know what? They still had issues one with the other. And to be able to deal with them and to have the confidence that you have someone who can deal with them professionally, correctly, honestly, with integrity, that's how we bring Shalom be Yisrael. You know, Chaim, thank you so much again. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.